Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're at the end of chapter 26, page 243. Is that right? No, actually, we're on page 242. And um, this um, heading has but... On Thursday, September the 24th, after our visit to Stuart was over, Brother Harris, accompanied by his wife and daughter, Rachel Ann, took us to Butt, a mining town, where lived a family belonging to the reorganised church. The head of this family was E.M. Bowen. He kept a hotel to which we repaired upon our arrival, only to find that the brother was absent from home. However, his family made us very welcome, and later, when the brother returned, we all had a very pleasant visit. Soon Brother Harris's folks left for home, and we remained as overnight guests. Overnight guests. Brother Luff had a well-developed gift of mimicking the call of various animals, especially that of the cat. This evening he created some amusement for all of us through this clever accomplishment, making it appear that the cries of a kitten were coming from the chair in which I was sitting. The entertainment this afforded received a sudden check back when our genial host, who like a great many Westerners was very fond of drink and had come home somewhat under the influence of spirits that could hardly be termed celestial, hearing the sounds of the crying kitten, became plainly worried and befuddled. For a while, he kept up a show of chat and good cheer, and then suddenly, too annoyed to stand it any longer, and fancying the kitten had in some manner gotten into the centre of the chair, he got a knife and hammer and insisted on taking the chair to pieces to liberate the animal. <laughs> it took some time to explain the joke and expose Brother Luff's share in the delusion. When he, he understood it, Brother... Bowen laughed as heartily as the rest of us at the prank. In the morning, in spite of the rain, I went out into the city where I ran across three brothers, George, Edward and David, sons of brother Donald Maul, a settler of western Iowa. They were grocers. The younger men escorted me about the city where I was permitted to examine to some extent the methods of running one of the rich mines of the place. I had not the time or inclination to descend into the bowels of the earth at that time to see how men by hard toil there wind from rocks and de depths the gold and silver metal upon which their substance depended. I also met that day an eccentric individual by the name of Matthew Mudd, with whom I passed an interesting half hour. It was Friday, September the 25th, when Brother Luff and I said goodbye to Brother and Sister Bowen and took a 5.30 train to McGammon, en route for Malad City. Brother Bowen gave me, as a parting token, $20 and his wife bestowed a silk handkerchief. One thing I will note here, which might have been mentioned before, on our way into Butte from Stuart, I had amused myself by counting the bottles, whole or broken, that were strewn along the roadway, abandoned as an outer garment is cast aside when the wearer is through with it. Dead soldiers is what Sister Harris called them. I think the number was 288 and did not include those in a small heap that we passed, a collision which was large enough 
a collection which was large enough to fill an old-time dry goods box of 10 bushel capacity. This would perhaps send the number of bottles to four or 500, which will illustrate in some measures the nature of the traffic which had passed that way before us. Next heading, Malad City. Brother Luff and I reached McCammon only to discover that our conveyance from there to Malad City had not yet arrived. It came later with Brother Nels Johnson in charge and so we went we were unable to get to Malad on the evening of the second day, Saturday, September the 26th, where we laboured until the following Thursday, busy with sermons and visiting. In company with Brother Luff, I again climbed the mountain, which had baffled me before, and this time I went clear to the top, a triumph I enjoyed greatly. The scene was a glorious one, for spread out like a panorama for our delight lay the sweep of valley in both directions. A truly magnificent spectacle. For many miles we could trace the rippling river as a thread of silver and could look across the valley almost to Bear River on the east. We were courteously entertained here by saints and their friends by invitation, dining at the homes of Morgan and Hobart Jones and visiting other places at the suggestion of Brother Lewis, Brother John of Brother Lewis. Brother John Lewis, I might say, was a Welshman as were many other members of the church at Malad. He had come from Wales with his family, and being a saddler, was appointed by Brigham Young as a saddler to the church. He was installed in the tithing office premises, where, in the employ of the church, he conducted the business of making harness, saddles, etc., for who, for all who wished to procure them. I found Brother Lewis a very genial gentleman, full of life and spirit, and with a memory well docked with many things he had seen and heard in those former days. Upon opportunity, he took great delight in recounting these, and many were the tales he told of his experiences in the tithing office, and what he had there observed and overheard. Some of these stories, as he told them, revealed quite clearly the characters of the Utah church leaders, in a light that was not very much to their credit, though perhaps it was a truer light than that in which they were wont to shine before the public at that time, or in which they have been held up to the gaze of the younger generation since. The things he learned and experienced caused Brother Lewis to break away from the domination of President Brigham Young and move to the Malad Valley, just as similar things affected countless others. The next heading, back to Salt Lake City. On Thursday, October the 1st, Brother and Sister Lewis accompanying we returned to Salt Lake City, going by wagon to Colliston, and from there by train to our destination, which was reached on the evening of the same day. We were welcomed by the saints and again took up our labours in the city. Our first objective being our district conference. It consisted of the usual business and social meetings and services on Sunday held in our own chapel. Sunday afternoon, we went to the tabernacle and heard a speaker who was, I think, John H. Morgan. I have no memorandum of who presided over that meeting of the Mormon people, but I do know that the leading officers of the church were at that time secluding themselves from public notice because of warrants for their arrest, which were in the hands of marshals whom they sought most studiously to avoid. Next heading, a remarkable baptism. I've already recited the instance which had happened earlier in the year as I was going to church one Sunday and a baptism scene was presented to me in prophetic vision. Its fulfilment 
occurred on the occasion of this visit when on October the 6th at Warm Springs, some three and a half miles north of the city and connected therewith by a street railway, I led into the waters of baptism Augusta Soderberg, the woman who had preceded me into the chapel on that particular Sunday the June before. On the road to the springs for the ceremony, I related to the little company with me the singular manifestation I had had now about to find fulfilment. Besides Sister Soderberg, I baptised sisters Clara Ward and Sarah Rand. We were permitted to use the baths for the rite by paying the usual entry fee of 25 cents. Next heading, Cousin John. Soon after returning from my lad, I called upon my cousin John Smith, taking tea with him and his family. The privilege of visiting at his, house, at his home was freely extended to me, and I was always assured of a kindly welcome from him, together with the utmost courtesy. He was six weeks older than I, having been born in September 1832, and there had never at any time been a break in our friendship. So far as I knew, he was at the time of which I am writing the husband of only one wife, she was not only hostile to the doctrine of plural marriage, but decidedly and vigilantly opposed to its practice, and was always free in expressing her denouncement of it. My cousin would not talk to me upon the subject, but I had a strong feeling that at heart he was satisfied that his wife was correct in her judgment of it. He had visited in Nauvoo in 1860, and again I think in 1862. Upon both occasions I had made him welcome at my house, and he made it his headquarters, while in the vicinity, I recall clearly a conversation which took place between us in 1860 on the day before he started back west. I now relate it as it comes to memory, fresh and clear as if it had occurred but yesterday. He had spent nearly a month in visiting among our relatives in the eastern part of the county, while allowing his team of horses opportunity to rest and recuperate for the long drive back across the plains. In soberness of spirit that day, he invited me to come out to Utah and make them a visit. I was cutting wood in my yard at the time he made this request. He standing nearby and chatting with me. For a while, he talked rather idly about the possibilities of such a visit, and then I asked him if he thought I should be safe in making it. He answered that he thought I would be, and that I would be courteously treated by the leader out there. Then I asked him if I would be free to express my opinions to the people, to which he replied that he thought that would depend largely upon the circumstances and places. Then I put this direct query. Cousin John, suppose I should visit Salt Lake City and should be invited to speak from a public stand. Would I be safe in expressing my opposition to the doctrine and practice of polygamy and plural marriage and in freely stating my opinions in reference to them and their origin? Well, cousin Joseph, I do not think you would be so foolish as to speak against the doctrine in so public a place and manner as that, and in the presence of those who would be likely to be on the platform with you. I dropped the axe I was using, and with all the force and fire and love of freedom which I had inherited from my New England ancestors, at once awake and alert in my soul, I exclaimed, Cousin John, I am a free man, was born free. And my opinions and my tongue are my own. And I'm not telling you that if I should be asked my opinions about polygamy and stood in a pulpit along with Brigham Young himself, I should speak it out plainly and unmistakable as I would to you here and now. He looked at me steadily and thoughtfully a moment and then he said soberly, I think you had best not go out to Utah yet. We parted on good terms 
I have always thought that he knew that should I dare at that period to express myself in Salt Lake City, as I had intimated I would, and I have done during, before and since this visit of 1885, of which I am now writing, I should be in danger from some source or other, and that I should not be protected by present Young's authority. Next heading, Other Good Friends. To go back to the October of 1885, I alternated with Brother Luffin speaking in our chapel at night and visiting during the day from place to place, or busying myself with correspondence with home folks, the Herald Office, or the officials of the church, or with some other literary work as came to hand. One evening I ate dinner with the family of one James A. Browning, who, whose acquaintance I had formed in 1876. His wife was a member of the Chase family of Ogden and of the reorganised church. I greatly enjoyed the hour or two of home-like conversation there. She was a bright intellectual turn of mind, sensible and well-informed, with a strong dislike for theory and practice of polygamy. Mr Browning's father had been a polygamist of so great a prominence that he was notorious even among his own people. The cottage in which the Brownings lived was one of a row of some six or eight one-storey adobe buildings, which the senior Browning had built to house his several wives. They were quite near the, the home of one of my Smith cousins. James Browning himself was strongly opposed to polygamy and freely expressed the antipathy he felt towards it, but reticement in speaking of his father or the latter's connection with the dogma practice. The old gentleman had passed to his reckoning before my visit. The older ones who had been members of his polygamous household had perished, and the younger ones had passed out of association. About this time, I made the acquaintance of Brother Joseph Wilson, who had come from the south some years before. He was a miner and had made a little stake in the mines of the mountains. He had found among the Mormons a woman to his liking, who was a southerner, and they had married. His wife's health failed to a great degree. Both of them became dissatisfied with the polygamous conditions that developed, and both joined the reorganised church. Their house was a home for all elders who chose to, chose to call Brother Robert J. Anthony and others often making the place their headquarters when in the city. Brother Wilson, having been in the habit of caring for himself, was a good housekeeper and an excellent cook. Like many Western men, he was not averse to doing that sort of work and usually helped his wife prepare meals, for she was not sufficiently strong and rugged to carry the whole burdens of the house, especially when company was present. Sometimes in the afternoons, when I began to get hungry, I would slip over to the market and procure a pound or two of fish, often salmon, fresh from the waters of the lakes, and take it down to Brother Wilson's. He would cook it, make some excellent soda biscuit to go with it, and we would indeed have a happy time eating and visiting, sometimes adding to the programme a game or two of chess or checkers. He was a fair player and liked well to win, but through careful consideration and courteous treatment, there was never any wrangling between us as players. I was always made welcome there, and since they had no children, I found it a quiet and restful haven. According to my notes, I see that following my noon meal at the home of Brother Browning, I had later made my way to Brother Wilson's with a couple of pounds of fine fish and stayed with him for supper, after which we repaired to the chapel for service in the evening. 
The next day, I avowed myself of another opportunity to visit Governor Murray and had an interview with him that gave me considerable encouragement. He seemed broad-minded and willing to grant justice in judgment, neither withholding it from those who differed from him in opinion, nor willing to allow those who were breaking the law to escape from answering to the courts for their transgressions. I called his attention to certain statutes of the territory which I thought were unjust and damaging, and which the government ought to note and correct for the sake of the people. He assured me he had the matter under consideration and expected to embody in his next report further suggestions concerning them. Whether or not he mentioned these matters in that report, I cannot say now, nor whether, if so, he, his observations assisted in modifying the laws under the territory, after the territory became a state. I had decided as far as practicable to avoid further discussions in my public sermons of the subject of plural marriage, for it had become a matter of such common talk that the people were tired of it, However, on Sunday night, October the 11th, I was strangely led to rehearse a portion of the history of the church and trace the various revelations given in the Bible, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants upon the marriage relation. I spoke from an affirmative standpoint, carefully avoiding denunciatory comment, but leaving no opportunity for any of my hearers to infer from my remarks or the text used that the dogma of polygamy could possibly be supported in argument. There was a Silas Smith in my audience, a distant relative of Uncle John Smith, Elias Smith and others of my father's cousins and uncles. He was very friendly and I had a pleasant conversation with him. He invited me to visit him in his home in Manassas, Colorado, which I promised to do if I possibly could and if I ever and if ever I should visit that locality. The next day, by appointment, I called again at the home of Judge Elias Smith and received from his granddaughter, Lucy, the transcript of genealogy of the Smith family kept by them, which she had prepared for me. Tuesday, I went to call on cousin John Smith, but found he was absent. I met his daughter, Lucy Davis, who was home visiting with her mother, and both ladies treated me with courtesy and kindness. The week ended with another call on Governor Murray to procure a copy of the Statutes of the Territory. And that is the end of chapter 26. I'm going to carry on now with chapter 27, which is also a continuation of Utah, of Joseph Smith III's visit to Utah. Thank you for joining me. It had been oh, the heading interviews. It had been decided in consultation with Brethren Luff and Anthony that we should go from Salt Lake City as far south as Beaver, taking in certain points between the two places. Our first stop was at Lehigh, where Brother Anthony had secured a place for our services. Lehigh was the city where Brother Blair and Brother Anthony had held a discussion with a lawyer, David Ebenen. Evans and a colleague of the Mormon Church. We called upon Elder Evans in his office and in the chat that followed our introductions. I asked him if he were not one of those who had met our elders in debate. Yes, he answered. I was one of the innocents they dragged to the slaughter. Oh, said I. So you admit it was a slaughter then? Very jovially, he answered. Oh, yes, it was a slaughter. All right. For my comrades and I were badly defeated. I had understood that such was the case, 
for they had undertaken to prove from the Bible the validity of the doctrine of polygamy. In the evening we held a service in the music hall of the city. We went early to the room and were met and welcomed by a number of our own members, as well as other friends and citizens. In chatting before the services, somebody came and told me that Mrs. Ira Willis was present. I referred to this woman in the early parts of these memoirs. This news was of interest, for I had frequently been told that she used to be Melissa Lott, claimed to have been a wife to my father and would so testify, and that I would not dare to visit and interview her, for she would tell me unwelcome things. I had, of course, seen the Averdavies, which she and others made, published by Joseph F. Smith, to bolster up his statement that father had more wives than one. I at once went to Mrs. Willis, was introduced and promptly asked the privilege of calling upon her for an interview. This permission she very cordially granted. I took up the line of my discourse without paying any special attention to the fact that one of the women reputed to be a wife to my father was present to listen to me. What I said was received with marked attention and no audience could have been quieter or better behaved. The next heading, the clerks. That night I was entertained at the house of a brother in the church named David Clark. He had lived in Nauvoo where as a child I had known him. He and his brother Francis had come from England. They were stonecutters and were employed in dressing the stone, caps, sills and water tables in the brick store father built. My first acquaintance with them was made while they were so engaged. The stone used was a sort of sandstone dugout on the Iowa side of the river. When first taken from the quarry, it was soft and easily chiselled into shape, but when exposed to the weather, it would harden until it would take, it would take any kind of polish. These brothers, Clark, established a stone yard on their premises on Parley Street, some half mile west of the river, where they carried on the business of finishing stones, gravestones, monuments, dimension and trimming stones for brick houses, etc. Francis had Francis with his family had remained at Nauvoo where he did some years where he died some years after the Exodus, but David went west with the emigra the emigration to Utah. He and his wife were living in the cottage he had built at that time, and they made me very welcome there. It was especially pleasing to me to meet this elderly couple. From them, I learned something about the mode of tithe collecting that prevailed at that time among the Mormons. Whatever it may have been in the earlier times, in the fall, of, in the fall previous to my visit, after their crops were harvested, he and his wife had made a careful account of what they had raised. They tithed everything that had resulted from the year's labours, including the fruits which Sister Clark had put up during the season, their corn, wheat, oats, potatoes, pumpkins, everything in the garden, and their increase of cattle and pigs, of which latter they had quite a number. Making a clean sweep of everything... They had turned over to the bishop one-tenth part of their entire production and increase with no reference to or subtraction of their living expenses for the year. The aged couple had then considered that they were free to use what was left to the best advantage they could, 
But what was their astonishment when the time came for them to kill some cattle and hogs already tithed, to have the bishop wait upon them and demand a tithe of the pork and beef and insist upon his its immediate payment. The mere recital of this wrong to them made me feel very indignant, and I suggested that it would have been worth contending about, but Brother Clark said with a queer smile, Brother Joseph, you don't know what you are talking about. It was far easier for me to submit to the injustice than to subject myself to the persecution which would surely have followed had I refused. But, he added, straightening himself up with eyes flashing, that is the last tithing I will ever pay into that church. I will pay my taxes and my just dues as a citizen, but I have done with paying in that way. While staying at his house, a son, whose home was built a little way from his father's, gave me some dried venison, which he had obtained and cured on a recent hunting trip. It was the first of the kind I'd ever seen. It was almost semi-translucent and would cut down like cheese, seeming to have little or no grain like other flesh. It proved to be very, very palatable indeed. My visit with David Clark and his wife was a very pleasant one, and I went from their home, leaving a sincere blessing with them. The next heading, the Lot Sisters. By appointment, I went to the home of Mrs Willis at 10 o'clock on the Tuesday following our meeting in the music hall. As I have already stated in connection with this woman, she was a daughter of Cornelius P. Lott, a man who had come to Nauvoo from the east. His family consisted of wife's sons John and baby Peter and daughters Melissa, Martha, Mary and Alzina. They lived in a house on the farm belonging to father, just east of the city, and I knew them all in a general way. I was fairly well acquainted with Melissa and with her history, and movements up to the time of their departure from Nauvoo, when they all emigrated to Utah. Melissa married Ira Willis, as I have related, a kind, shrewd Yankee, a most excellent man. I had heard that they had had two sons, but when I went to call on her, she was living alone. One son had died as he approached manhood, and the husband and the other son had together met death in an accident, occurring when they were coming down from the mountains with a load of wood, so she was left a widow and childless at the same time. Her home was a one-room cottage, and when bidden to enter, I found her sitting by the fireside preparing things for the midday meal. It was an old-fashioned fireplace, and as I was used to seeing, with broad hearth and wide-throated chimney, in which were the traditional hooks to support the kettles swung over the fire, the big dogs on which the logs rested, and nearby the fire shovel, tongs and poker. Ira Willis had always been a thrifty and handy man of all work, and loved to make and provide many conveniences and accessories for his home. I have told how Ira Willis once released my tongue from a frosty axe by pouring warm water on the imprisoned member. He had a hearty laugh at my expense, and for several hours I nursed an extra mouthful of swollen tongue. Mother, too, had laughed at the occasion, at the occurrence when she heard of it and told me it would be well for me if I could learn some things without trying too many experiments for myself. I have never forgotten that instance, and even today, as I retell the story, my stenographer and I have had a hearty laugh over the predicament of an excited boy rushing into the house with, this, with his tongue glued to a frosted axe. 
I was well received by Mrs. Willis, whom I knew by the old familiar name of Melissa. I told her I had had a great desire to talk with her, for I had been informed she knew things I would not dare question to question her about. I said I wanted to know the truth, whatever it was, and believed that in answer to my questions she would be willing to tell me what she knew. She answered that she would be glad to grant the interview and explained that some unexplained company was coming for lunch. Sorry, I'll start again. She answered that she would be glad to grant the interview but explained that some unexpected company was coming for lunch and she would prefer if I could call in the afternoon instead when she would be more at liberty and with leisure for a conversation. Of course, this was agreeable to me. And after exchanging a few reminiscences, I left her. Returning in the afternoon, I found her guests had gone and she was ready for a chat, willing, as she said, to answer any question I would ask about conditions in Nauvoo, of which she had any knowledge, I began ask by asking, Did you know of the teaching of plural marriage or polygamy at Nauvoo? I had heard of it in private, but not publicly. Did you know of any woman having been married to my father and living with him as wife besides my mother? No, and nothing of the kind occurred to my knowledge. Do you have any reason to believe such a thing took place and that my mother knew of there being another woman besides herself who was wife to my father? No, quite emphatically, I am sure she did not. Now, Melissa, I have been told that there were women other than my mother who were married to my father and lived with him as his wife and that my mother knew it. How about it? She answered rather tumultuously. If there was anything of that kind going on, you may be sure that your mother knew nothing about it. I then asked her what was her opinion of my mother's character for truth and veracity. She replied that she considered my mother one of the noblest women in the world and that she had known her well and knew her to be as good and truthful a woman as ever lived. Then you think I would be justified in believing what my mother told me? Yes, indeed. Or she would not lie to you. Well, Melissa, my mother told me that my father had never had any wife other than herself, had never had any connection with any other woman as a wife, and was never married to any woman other than herself, with her consent or knowledge, or in any manner whatsoever. Do you consider I am justified in believing her? Without hesitation, she answered, if your mother told you any such thing as that you may depend upon what she said and feel sure she was telling the truth and that she knew nothing about any such state of affairs, yes, she would be entirely justified in believing her. Our conversation continued for some time. Finally, I asked plainly, Melissa, will you tell me just what was your relation to my father, if any? She arose, went to a shelf and returned with a Bible, which she opened at the family record pages and showed me a line written there in a scrawling handwriting. Married my daughter Melissa to Prophet Joseph Smith, given the dates which I seem to remember as late 1843. I looked closely at the handwriting and examined the book and other entries carefully. Then I asked, who were present when this marriage took place, if marriage it may be called? No one but your father and myself. Was my mother there? No, sir. Was there no witness there? No, sir. Where did it occur? At the house on the farm. And my mother knew nothing about it before or after? No, sir. Did you ever live with my father as wife in the mansion house in the Nauvoo, as has been claimed? No, sir. Did you ever live with him as wife anywhere I, um, I persisted? 
At this point, she began to cry and she said, no, I never did. But you have no business asking me such questions. I used a grand, I had a great regard and respect for both your father and your mother. I do not like to talk about these things. Well, Melissa, I have repeatedly been told that you have stated that you were married to my father and lived with him as his wife and that my mother knew of it. Now you tell me you never did live with him as his wife, although claiming to have been married to him. You tell me there was no one present at that purported marriage except the three of you and that my mother knew nothing about such an alliance. Frankly, I'm at a loss to know just what you would have me believe about you. I was about to make still closer inquiries in order to find out if she ever had any relations of any sort with my father other than the ordinary relations that may properly exist between such persons under the usual conditions of social procedure. When just then there came a rap on the door and in walked her sisters Mary and Alzina. Alzina lived rather near Melissa, but Mary, the older, was living some 25 or 30 miles away. Here when I was in Lehigh, she had hitched up her team and came to see me, stopping Alzina's on the way and bringing her along. They expressed great pleasure in meeting me again, and I was glad to see them. Our talk was general for a while, for their entrance had changed my line of inquiry somewhat. Then urged to put to Melissa a question of importance, I asked, Melissa, do you know where I can find a brother or a sister, child or children of my father, born to him by some woman other than my mother in Illinois, Utah or anywhere else. She answered that she did not. Whereupon Mary broke in and said, No, Brother Joseph, for there isn't any. Then she went on to say, For twelve years I have made it my business to run down every rumour I have heard about the existence of children born to the prophet by those women who were reputed to have been his wives. I have travelled a good many miles here and there for the purpose of finding out the truth about such statements, and not in one single instance have I ever found them substantiated or any evidence presented that had the least hit of truth in it. I have never been able to find a single child which could possibly have been born to Joseph Smith in plural marriage. At this juncture, Alzina snapped in with an explosive and characteristic exclamation. No, Brother Joseph, there is none. And what's more, I don't believe there was ever any chance for one. The earnestness of her manner and the snap with which she pointed her remark caused a ripple of laughter among us, in which, however, Melissa did not join. Noticing this, I turned to her and said, Melissa, how about it? You hear what your sisters are saying? Tears began to trickle down her face as she said, Yes, Brother Joseph, I hear them. Well, what do you say? Can I believe as they do? She drew a deep breath as if making a sudden decision and then with a sigh with trembling lips, Yes, you can believe that they are telling you the truth. There was no chance for any children. Mary then explained in more detail about certain places she had gone to make inquiries directly of the persons involved whom she named and to see the children in the to see the women and the children who, it was stated, were wives and offspring of the prophet. She said in every instance she had proved the report false, either as to the women claiming to be such a wife or as to the women, as the children being there as claimed. I thanked her and the other girls for the statements they had made. 
Our conversation on this and other topics continued for some time. We recalled many incidents of old times and I learned from them of the deaths of their parents and the whereabouts and fortunes of others of the family. I left this I left these sisters feeling well repaid for my persistence in obtaining the interview with Mrs. Willis. In spite of what I had been told, she had neither been able to face me down nor to convince me that my father had done reprehensible things which I would be unwilling to believe. Instead, I left her presence and that of her sisters with my previous convictions more firmly established, if such a thing were possible. The interview had convinced me that the statement made in an avidavy of this Melissa Lot Willis, published by Joseph F. Smith, along with others of similar import, to the effect that she had been married to Joseph Smith was not true, provided the word married be construed as conveying the right of living together as man and wife, a relation she had unequivocally denied in my presence. I was convinced that wherever the word married or sealed occurred in such testimonials regarding my father, it meant nothing more than that possibly those women had gone through some ceremony or covenant which they intended as an arrangement for association in the world to come and could by no means have any reference whatever to marital rights in the flesh. I was also convinced from the statements of Mrs Willis that the entry in the Bible which she showed me was a line written by her father or some other person recording an untruth. When I asked her in plain language how it happened she had not lived with my father as his wife if she had really been married to him, she had answered in equally plain language that she had not lived with him in that manner because it was not right that she should do so. I had made up my mind when I went to Utah that whenever and wherever I found opportunity I would converse with those women whom had claimed or were reputed to be wives of my father. Wives in polygamy, plural marriage, celestial, sealed or any kind of arrangement. And in, in so doing I would subject them to as severe a cross-examination as was within my power to get as near as possible to the actual truth of the circumstances and the reports. It was for this reason as I reason I had called upon this woman and I should have questioned her still further and in a more specific manner had not the entrance of her sisters turned the trend of conversation in a measure. After my visit south to Beaver we passed through Lehigh again on our way back to Salt Lake City at which time I tried to have another conversation with Mrs Willis but learned she was not at home I knew it would have been entirely useless to question her in the presence of an elder of their church as she would either evade my questions or refuse utterly to answer indeed it is possible that she may have been so far under domination and surveillance as to have stated in such a contingency that which was not true as it was i felt i had secured truthful statements from her for she had betrayed some real depths of emotion as we conversed she had stated that i might believe what my mother had told me for she regarded my mother at as an honest, upright woman who was absolutely truthful. She also stated that notwithstanding the marriage entry scribbled in her Bible, purported to be written by her father, she had not lived with Joseph Smith as his wife, believing it was not right to do so, and further that he had never urged her to do so. I had also learned from her and her sisters that so far as their knowledge went, there had been no issue of any polygamous marriages made by Joseph Smith, such as had been alleged. 
About this time, I made an effort to secure an interview with Eliza Partridge, reputed to be one of the wives of Amasa Lyman, but was disappointed when I called at her home to learn she was absent from home.